they were really fascinated by the very different approach to problem solving that the team had. And this was a moment in time where in management education, at least in the United States, there was a real uh, crisis in terms of understanding that maybe the linear frameworks that we were teaching in business school were not enough to, again, do well in the complexity of the world today. And in that process, they observed that the designers had a much bigger tolerance to ambiguity. They were able to stay, uh, and this is a word that I love that Frank Geary uses, to stay in a liquid state, right? So where you're not trying to come back with an answer right away, but you're trying to really probe many alternatives. And they thought that that was a very refreshing way to think about coming up with problem solving, right? Instead of having a decision attitude. And a decision attitude, as we know, is like when you're trying to peel away choices to come back, you know, with one choice and then plan around that choice. A design attitude is much more open and it says that actually you need to have a whole other set of cognitive skills to approach a problem. Hi, everyone. I'm Fabio, the host of the Shaping Chaos podcast. And today I have Mariana Matulu with me, the Vice Provost for Global Strategic Initiatives at the New School. Mariana co-founded and led the award-winning social innovation department Design Matters, at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. She also has a PhD in management from Case Western Reserve University. Uh, Mariana, I just want to thank you very much for coming to the show. And I want to ask you if you have anything that you want to add to the intro. Um, well, maybe to have your listeners, Fabio, know that currently I'm in New York City. I'm mm -hmm. very proud to be uh, an associate professor at the School of Design Strategies at Parsons. Um, Parsons is the design school within uh, the new school. Um, mm -hmm. The new school is a, a uniquely comprehensive university that looks at the marriage of uh, social sciences and design. And I'm uh, also serving as a vice provost mm -hmm. for global strategic initiatives at the new school. And finally, um, yeah, and finally, I, I am I'm <laughs> delighted to to be part of your podcast and uh, know that many listeners are in Europe where many members of Cumulus, the International Association um, of Art, Design and Media uh, that I serve in as president um, are located. So thank mm -hmm. you for having me. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, Mariana, the goal of this podcast is to help leaders learn how to navigate uncertainty and complexity by um, sharing with them tools and ideas that can spark innovative thinking. And one of the things that I do in this podcast is with every guest, I ask one question. And that one question, I'm very interested to hear your perspective on it. And the question is, um, why are you helping leaders? Have you ever been in a particular chaotic situation? And if you did, how did you navigate that uncertainty? Well, um, thank you. Um, yes, I think 
I, I'm, I find that I'm often in chaotic <laughs> situations <laughs> and, and not only one. And um, in a way, when you're an educator, um, you open yourself up to be in vulnerable situations and, and situations of chaos, meaning that there are situations where you have to act and um, use a lot of sense making to understand patterns and to deal with uncertainty. Um, yeah. And um, if I want to think of an example of that, um, basically, I uh, the last year I think for us um, in uh, in higher education with the COVID nineteen pandemic mm-hmm. has uh, unleashed uh, completely right chaos um, in terms of our ability to make decisions and um, and help steer our institutions forward. Um, and uh, it's been, uh, you know, very energizing to be part of a very dynamic group at the, at the senior level at the new school as we uh, worked collectively yeah. to transfer all of our you know, all of our courses online in a couple of weeks of time mm-hmm. and make um, decisions very quickly to uh, make sure we could, um, you know, ensure that the excellence and the experience of the education we promise our students would mm-hmm. be there for them despite mm-hmm. uh, despite the uncertainty and yeah. the lockdowns that descended upon us. Mm-hmm. That's, that's incredible that you shared that because... It's, it's a situation that everyone can connect with. Everyone is feeling the same thing. Um, are there any tools or any, any frameworks that you use in order to navigate that uncertainty? Probably better than someone that is less prepared. Let's, let's call it like that. Uh-huh. Well, um, you know, I remember, so part of my work in design education and design mm-hmm. and social innovation has been really a gift for me in terms of working not only with very talented designers, but with um, uh, experts in many, many disciplines, depending on the projects I've had to uh, take on. And um, a very, uh, you know, important project in terms of its learnings for my own uh, personal sort of trajectory was Mm -hmm. a project that I did many years ago around... uh, Earthquake preparedness. Um, okay. It was a project. It was a five-year project um, that uh, resulted in a public uh, awareness campaign in the United States and a book that mm-hmm. the wonderful designer Stefan Zagmeister designed for us. Um, and it was a project mm-hmm. of Design Matters at Art Center. And in in the in the research and in the development of that project, I had the opportunity to work with a number of uh, scientists and emergency managers, uh, and among them, uh, an incredible team um, uh, with uh, Dutch Leonard and Arne Howitt at Harvard, who mm-hmm. uh, I got to interview and include in this book. And as the pandemic unleashed in the last year, um, you know, I had an exchange with, uh, with, uh, with Arne Howitt and he shared, you know, some of the papers he he was writing very quickly um, to uh, from the Kennedy School to mm-hmm. sort of give to policymakers and leaders as they were contending with the emergency. And what was very striking for me in that process was to hear him say, 
you know, this is a situation where we really don't have a playbook on how okay. to act. Yeah. We have a lot of frameworks. So this is my long-winded answer to say that <laughs> sometimes we have fra frameworks for decision-making and we have a lot of knowledge. But um, when we are confronted with the level of complexity that we were confronted with uh, in this, you know, cascading series of events with this pandemic, even our best known knowledge and, and playbooks are no longer sufficient. And uh, I think that humility sometimes for recognizing that, yes, there are tools that we should use, but maybe we also need the ingenuity mm -hmm. and the creativity of imagining something else where we might not have a tool yet. Um, that, I think, is a sign of resilience. Mm -hmm. And I also think that that's how we we sort of educate our students and how we think as, as designers and as design educators, uh, that there might not be a tool and that the tool is and the framework is not enough. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible because it just relates with one of the things that I was, that I discovered during my research. Um, I've discovered a concept that um, you mentioned many times. It's called um, design attitude. And what is design attitude? Yeah, so um, the the construct and the concept of design attitude mm -hmm. is um, one that was coined. It was a word that was uh, coined by uh, a couple of uh, former professors of mine from Weatherhead and the Case Western Reserve University here in the United States, uh, Fred Calopi and Richard Boland. Mm. Um, they are two uh, very prominent management scholars And they were uh, very involved as professors and as faculty in a big project at the university for several years, which was partnering um, and collaborating with the architect Frank Geary and his team in the design of a new building for, for the School of Management, um, which now stands very proudly on that campus. And if you Uh, are curious, you know, just Google the Weatherhead School of Management and you will see Frank's uh, beautiful building. Um, it's like a smaller, a smaller uh, Guggenheim Bilbao. Um, and in that, pro in that process of working with Frank Geary, uh, they were very involved in giving, you know, advice on where to put offices and the needs of the professors and the auditoriums and the buildings. Um, they were really fascinated by the very different approach to problem solving that the team had. And this was a moment in time where in management education, at least in the United States, there was, uh, there was a real uh, sort of uh, crisis in terms of understanding that maybe the linear frameworks that we were teaching in business school were uh, not enough to, again, uh, you know, do well in the complexity of the world mm -hmm. today. And um, in that process, they, they observed that the designers had a much bigger tolerance to ambiguity. They were able to stay, uh, and this is a word that I love that Frank Geary uses, to stay in a liquid state, right? So uh, where you're not trying to come back with an answer right away, mm -hmm. but you're trying to really probe many alternatives. 
And I thought that that was a very refreshing way to think about uh, coming up with problem solving, right? Instead of having a decision attitude. And Mm -hmm. a decision attitude, as we know, is like when um, you're trying to peel away choices to come back, you know, with one choice and then plan around that choice. Uh, Design attitude is much more open. And it, uh, it says that actually you need to have a whole other set of cognitive skills to approach a problem. Um, so uh, building on their research and, and the research of another colleague uh, in, in, uh, in England, Camille Mikluski, that also mm-hmm. did some work on design attitude, um, I have been uh, spending the last few years really, um, you know, developing this framework uh, further and uh, uh, doing research both quantitatively and qualitatively to demonstrate what happens when you have uh, a design attitude. And what what are those uh, preliminary findings? (laughs) I'm curious. Yes, yes. So what we were able to do, uh, what I was able to do during my my doctoral work Mm -hmm. and, and now extending that work with um, colleagues at Weatherhead um, and scholars at Weatherhead that I that I do uh, that I continue doing research and writing with uh, Kali Littinen and uh, and Jing from Weatherhead, um, we isolated uh, five dimensions that we were able to say can predict um, team learning in in situations of you know work where you have teams, but also can uh, predict better outcomes in innovation and social innovation projects. Mm -hmm. So the five dimensions of design attitude that we were able to see are the ability that that designers have to connect multiple perspectives, right? To connect Mm -hmm. the dots when they're trying to uh, problem solve. Um, The second dimension that there are five. So number one, connecting multiple perspectives. The second one is um, tolerance to ambiguity being okay with um, uh, not wanting, right, to, mm-hmm. to have uh, the, the black and white decision right away and uh, being, uh, being fluid with those situations. The yeah. third one uh, that we talk a lot about these days is empathy, right, putting mm-hmm. yourself in the shoes of others. Um, the fourth one is creativity, Again, this idea that there's a capacity to imagine something novel and useful. And then the last one is uh, engagement with aesthetics. The idea that, you know, recognizing multisensorial inputs and beauty as a a door to function um, Mm. is a very powerful way to problem solve and bring joy and meaning to folks. That's very good. One of the, one of the, um, the, the second one, uh, liquidity, it's something that it's very interesting to me because not many people talk about that, talk about the role of design as uh, a liquid form. Usually people see design as very static and focusing on form and beautification of things. So when do you find that? What, what, what were like the characteristics of a liquid designer? Of, or a liquid entity. Yes. Again, I think it's it speaks a lot to this cognitive process, right? The mm-hmm. mindset you see 
in in designers it doesn't necessarily speak to the output but um it's this ability to say um we have to experiment right we have to iterate we we love in in design you know prototyping and visualizing things and coming up with these what if scenarios and mm-hmm. all of that are actually manifestations of a process um, that shows that designers tolerate ambiguity, seek ambiguity. I love to tell my students at Parsons, you know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not about just being problem solvers. It's very often about being problem seekers, um, ah. finding those alternatives to. Mm-hmm to a situation. Uh, I think it's, you know, increasingly important Mm -hmm. these days. When I was looking at the Parsons website, um, there's uh, a video somewhere where there's an amazing quote that I took from this conversation um, that says, uh, design isn't just about the things we create, it's about the world we create. And as mm-hmm. the role of, of designers into big corporations, like, for example, the, the probably the most successful case is Airbnb, where the founder was a designer and is still a designer. Mm-hmm. And, and we're seeing more and more designers coming in uh, as leaders in big organizations, we're very successful. How, how, is, um, how is design, is the attitude so was design changing? Do you see that shift happening or what do you see from where you stand? Yes, it's an excellent question. Um, so I definitely, I definitely see the change. Um, you know, I was seeing it with the sort of explosion of um, a more important recognition of, of the role of design in public sector, in government, in, in social uh, initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see it now definitely in the generation of our students at Parsons. I, I'm very privileged to teach um, in a master's in strategic design and management where I mm-hmm. teach a seminar in leadership and design innovation. And oh, that's cool. every student uh, in, in that program, and it's an incredibly diverse international group of, of folks that come both from you know, design and business in terms of their mm-hmm. undergraduate trajectory. Um, they definitely uh, are um, setting up um, their studies and their trajectories to be uh, critical thinkers, to be contributors in terms of the decisions that get made, whether they decide to go into private or public sector or be entrepreneurs. Um, So, uh, you know, I'm always an optimist, but um, as an educator, but I would say that there is a, a very key shift from this sort of hero idea of the Western global North um, modernist designer, the designer of the industrial age, to the designer as a mediator, as a resonant leader, and Mm -hmm. as a facilitator um, that is involved in decision-making with with other other colleagues in non-design uh, yeah. from non-design uh, backgrounds, right? Mm-hmm. 
And one of the things that I talk about that um, I liked about that uh, liquidity is how it relates with uh, thinking from first principles and also um, having, like, when you come to a problem, just having nothing in your head, just coming as a novice. And I think yeah. designers are very good at that. And that liquidity just matched this very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I want to ask you as well is, um, in, in my work, often when someone reached me out and wants to work with us at Fairforth, um, usually in the beginning, there's a lot of process just explaining the value that design can bring to an organization. And because as, as before we were discussing, design is still seen as something that you create something and that's it. And we don't talk about uh, value um, at all. So I wondered how, how do you, in your work, how do you help leaders understand the value, the transformational value of design and the value that design uh, brings to their business? And also, which metrics do you use to, to capture that? Because business is often seen as a metric-based uh, or, uh, organization or a, a metric-based system. If you don't get met, uh, good metrics, you're probably not doing well. So I'm curious, how do you explain the value of design to, to business and to organizations? Yeah. Um, well, you know, this was really one of the motivations for me to do doctoral work. Um, okay. So, you know, I had a, a humanities background and I was working full time uh, with an incredible team at our center leading design matters. Mm -hmm. And in that role, I was often on the front lines of fundraising and, and having to explain convince partners in nonprofit areas in the United Nations and in the private sector that they should um, take a chance and you know work <laughs> with our students and and sponsor projects and give us grants. So I was always needing to make this argument of <laughs> the value and um, and at, at one point I decided it's important for me to try to, go into the management world and the business world and, and understand that language and the research mm -hmm. tools and see if I can bring that into, into my practice uh, as a design educator and as a design leader. And, um, and that resulted in really in the design attitude work and in the quantitative research. And so back to metrics, and this was very difficult research to do because as you are indicating, Fabio, there is very little um, in the design community in mm -hmm. terms of measurement tools, um, yeah. unlike other disciplines, right? Like mm -hmm. behavioral psychology or economics, you have a number of ways Definitely. with statistics to show to show correlations. Because we do not train people in quantitative research uh, as as a rule, as we do very little in in, in design. Um, this is a bit of, of another approach. And, okay. um, and I think uh, we are, uh, for good or bad, you know, in a world where there is a bias towards measurement and towards numbers. Uh, although, you know, when you, when you work with them, you realize that um, that is not the answer either because um, all these statistical studies are as good as the rigor you have in putting inputs and, and <laughs> understanding data. So uh, that said, you know, with, with, with that aside, um, there is something extremely valuable in, in having 
and having metrics that are authentic to the world of design and that actually show that there are statistical correlations that are mm-hmm. predictive. Um, so um, what uh, the, the, the design attitude work we've done uh, at Weatherhead has been a way to uh, have now, you know, a scientific, scientific studies that actually mm-hmm. show that if you have team members, the, they, they might be designers, they might be managers with design fluency, um, because they have this approach, this cognitive approach to problem solving, mm-hmm. there is value there. And a team learning will, will improve, uh, innovation outcomes will improve. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one way uh, that I have been able to reinforce my arguments is, is through a very rigorous research. So, so can we use, uh, do we use metrics like, I know that you said that metrics are difficult to use in design because it's kind of sub- a, a kind of a, not subjective, but let's use subjective as a word. Um, mm-hmm. The metrics of, um, for example, just uh, this diversifying the thinking inside the company that can be tracked probably. Um, mm-hmm. The impact of, of problem seeking rather than just problem solutions. How many problems are you seeking? Are those kind of metrics that you're looking to? Um, they are, and you know, I've had the opportunity to um, uh, be involved in a in a research study uh, that colleagues at um, IDEO.org have been mm-hmm. leading, uh, also around the value of design to understand um, over time. Um, this is, you know, a t- an incredible team that does work internationally uh, on projects that have a social impact. And they work with uh, large nonprofits and international development agency clients. And there, you know, they they have um, been doing a very important study to, to look at over time, where are the places that these partners find value? And another way to measure this value that, you know, we're seeing from the study and others is the question around the relational dimension of design, right? Design mm-hmm. as, as leadership, it's a lot about relationships and mm-hmm. the social capital, the trust that you create through these relationships that can uh, bring a lot of value because it typically opens a space for, um, you know, open dialogue and creativity and mm-hmm. the ability to uncover sometimes, you know, uh, gaps uh, that are in structures that you don't see um, that you don't see necessarily in the surface. Interesting. That just relates with another question I want to ask you around innovation. What what do you think are the most significant barriers to innovation? Mm-hmm. Wow, For organizations, or, yeah, it's <laughs> a big question. <laughs> um. You know, I um, as I was preparing to talk to you, Fabio, I was <laughs> rereading um, one of my um, famous uh, favorite authors, Don- Donella Meadows. Um, okay, the yeah. great Donella Meadows, who's uh, done so much. You know, she wrote design, groundbreaking work, design systems or system design, right. something like that, right? Uh, yeah, designing she, systems, thinking, thinking and systems, right? That's and it. That's she. The one. Um, uh, she has, you know, 
so many incredible statements. But one of the things she says that I think connects to your question about innovation mm-hmm. is um, is is really pointing to the interdependencies of a system and being able, right, to see that it's not just again a, a linear. Um, a linear process where there is one outcome or one mm-hmm. output, but it's so much about the the interdependencies and thinking about those feedback loops and finding the levers um, to to provoke change. Yeah. Um, and another, you know, systems uh, thinker Russell Akoff before Donella Meadows talks about um, our ability to solve problems really being limited by our conception of what is feasible. So this idea that imagination um, is so important, right? Uh, That it's very hard to innovate when we have a mental model that frames our thinking Mm -hmm. and doesn't allow us to explore those what ifs. Mm -hmm. And I think what we see in... uh, in fields of design that are really uh, gaining very powerful traction, like speculative design, Mm -hmm. uh, like futures and foresight and design, are um, ways to to really push uh, being in that imagination space. um, That's incredible. And and, and think about alternative scenarios. Mm -hmm. What what do you think it causes that kind of... um, thinking inside the box um, mentality that usually people, when they seek someone like us, they are looking for that outbox experience. Um, what what causes that little um, gap, not gap, but like hermetic um, box inside your brain when you have like your ideas on expand over a certain, a certain threshold? Um, so, and you mean by... Uh, what we would see in managers or in yeah, non, exactly. non-design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, as what I've seen in, in my own research um, mm-hmm. in organizations and in large organizations, um, uh, some of, of that, um, those barriers to innovation tend to be really connected to what we call in management institutional logics, right? Larger mm-hmm. patterns of thinking that are uh, really structural in in mm-hmm. the organization and go beyond the individual manager or mm-hmm. employee's uh, sort of uh, work. Um, so things like um, being risk averse, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're in an international organization uh, like UNICEF, where, where mm-hmm. I did a lot of research uh, on design attitude, um, I was uh, I was embedded in this incredible innovation team at the time a few years ago, and they had a very strong design attitude. They had designers, they had non-designers, but they were really experimenting with, um, you know, new technology to uh, break barriers to access uh, for the most vulnerable children around the world, and their work was completely championed across across the organization. Mm-hmm. But um, the and 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 and, and you know and, and and it's been very successful. But that said, there were limits to this often, 
um, that in when there were barriers, they had to do with things like risk aversion, right? Because if yeah. you are in a place like UNICEF and you experiment with a technology, let's say for a vaccine and the vaccine doesn't work, you suddenly have, you know, people dying or people getting sick mm-hmm. and you can't, you know, as a collective institution, you can't, you can't do that. So, um, it's sometimes easy for designers to point the finger and say, yeah. oh, you know, my idea is not being taken seriously or mm-hmm. people are not being creative. And I think, um, you know, it, it is really very helpful for for designers to gain an awareness when they're working in an organization about these other logics that drive decision making. Mm-hmm. Because when you are able to see them and name them, chances are you can then help unlock them, right? Mm. Um, and help that decision maker be more open to what you might want to be mm-hmm. uh, advocating for. Yeah, and going back to your framework of, of um, the design attitude is probably the number five, where it's empathy. How how do you get empathy from the other side? How, how do you bring that gap, bring, bridge yeah. that gap between uh, different disciplines? Very, very important um, and, and very hard. You know, it's easier said than done, yeah. right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's hard to accomplish and it takes it takes practice um, and some courage, I will also mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that sparked this conversation between me and you was one uh, the reaction that you had with, to the podcast I did with Indy Johar, where you said that deep work it's something that it's missing in innovation or is a word that it's missing in innovation. Is it? Is yes. it also like a factor for all of these conversations that we had about innovation, which was, um, it, it's, it's a lack of deep work. What makes some of these problems also bigger problems? Yes, I, I was, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of Indy and, um, and he is part of, um, you know, Many of the publications I'm involved in, um, and anytime I have the opportunity to expose my students to his, to his work, I do because I, I think he's one of those uh, rare uh, and sort of multidimensional thinkers, <laughs> provo- provocateurs. Um, Definitely. And his, um, his phrase of, of, of is is so spot on. And I would equate it with this tendency we have as human beings to, you know, be looking at the short term <laughs> and um, very challenged to look at the long term. And so yeah. to me, uh, you know, when he talks about deep, deep, deep thinking and innovation, he's talking about timelines that are too short, uh, relational work that cannot happen, right, Mm -hmm. because of of those limitations, and a lack of investment in in that long-term view. And if there is something I've learned, you know, uh, working with community organizers and in the field over the years in the social innovation research and practice, I, I, I do is that really change really takes time and it is about the collective enterprise. It's not about the individual designer. Mm -hmm. And we are often our business models to engage designers and our constructs to work are often not aligned with those, with that long-term view. Yeah. 
I hope that it seems to me that one of the one of the positives outcomes of the pandemic is that people start looking um, more long term because they see the pandemic has very powerful long term effects. So I hope that that's one of the positives that come with the pandemic, which is just make sure that you do the deep work and you start thinking and have like individual thinking and then promote it with the rest of the team and create the empathy again. It's very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's definitely one of the silver linings. Mm -hmm. I agree. And talking about the pandemic and because you have a big uh, role in education and you, you are very involved in education. One of the things I see here when I, where I'm in Portugal at the moment is that education is in the pandemic is not working very well because uh, teachers probably don't know how to use the computer sometimes. They are struggling to manage um, their students. How do you see the role of education changing or even like the frame the framework that we use to educate people changing? Yes, it's it's a fantastic question, Fabio. And um, at at the new school in my administrative work in the last year, mm -hmm. I've been very involved um, supporting and uh, and learning from the teams that uh, work in instructional design and, and online delivery. Um, and so, really, have I've had in the last year a crash course <laughs> on the uh, <laughs> the opportunities, right to to innovate and engage and design courses um, for online and remote delivery. And I think what we are seeing is, of course, a very deep um, digital divide and a lot of mm -hmm. barriers to access, which you're, um, you are signaling in, 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 in your remarks uh, around the world. And um, this is a wake-up call to... Yeah to address those. Um, but on the positive side, and especially for the field of design education, we have seen an acceleration of forced innovation, right? Mm. Having to go online, all our design schools around the world. And again, as president of Cumulus, I, uh, which is an association that really champions international mobility and exchange and this network, you know, incredible universities that usually have a lot of work and students and faculty and researchers going back and forth, we have, we've had to go completely online. And that has forced <laughs> people to, um, to do things that they maybe were not necessarily open to mm -hmm. doing and discovering that there is uh, an opportunity to deploy technology and actually have very immersive and engagement, you know, engaging environments for teaching and learning online. Um, so we will see, I think um, that is not going to go away. I, I yeah. think people are hungry. They're hungry for social contact and presence, mm -hmm. but we, we will see that, uh, that there are a lot of wonderful uh, sort of, avenues for flexibility you know, and innovation mm -hmm. by virtually, you know, working with these modes. Um, yeah. So I'm excited about what is, is possible. Mm -hmm. yeah. You said something interesting, which is uh, forced innovation. I really like that term. Um, it seems that most innovations and uh, 
Most innovation sometimes comes as a, a way of forced innovation. Um, forced innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, what can we learn from that for, forced innovation? How can we make it um, happen more often without the emergency that it's attached right. to it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, this is a big question for, it's a leadership question, right? Yeah, and exactly. it's a question, because I think um, we will see, um, you know, a lot of organizations and companies are going to emerge from this and go back to business as usual. Mm -hmm. And maybe they will not uh, make it. Uh, very long. Um, yeah, yeah. And the ones that will really thrive are the ones that have these leaders who are able to balance, right, the immediate response with the um, bold energy to harness and think about, you know, what comes mm -hmm. next uh, mm -hmm. much later. Yeah. Um, and those are the resilient uh, leaders, and those are the ones who who will thrive. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting to watch what happens. <laughs> to me, um, the 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 vaccine development is a great illustration of some of the barriers of of innovation. For example, I've I was researching uh, the vaccine development, and I've noticed that what made it happen so shortly and so fast was just reducing bureaucracies or removing them sometimes um, and testing more often, testing more, uh, testing faster. So I just urge people to look at the their organization sometimes and as a, a designer and thinking, what can I change here to remove this bureaucracy? Is this bureaucracy really necessary here or is it just a waste of time? So I just urge people to think more about, about that and I just... I think I struggle a little bit to to make people um, learn that kind of framework, and I'm I'm glad that you talked a little bit about how you how you you help innovators or our leaders um, the value understand the value of design, and that's incredible. I I really like that that remarks that you've you've made. Um, yeah, so I had, I just have one last question for you, which is, um, I've you've mentioned a lot of uh, social innovation and social impacts. I wonder if there's any particular project that's happening at the moment that it's making you interested or curious to know more, and uh, if you want to share that. <laughs> ah, thank you. Well, you know, I um I've had the opportunity for the last two and a half years to partner. Mm -hmm with um, wonderful colleagues, um, Brian Boyer, um, who was one of the co-founders of the Helsinki Design Lab. You had Marco mm -hmm. in your yeah. podcast. Um, so Brian, um, Jennifer May, who is at Art Center and uh, worked, um, uh, is, is leading Design Matters. And I had the opportunity mm -hmm. to recruit her into, into that role um, before I left. Um, a colleague of mine at Parsons, Andrew Shea, um, and then a, a larger research team of former students at Parsons and an art center. We've been developing these, this book um, called Designing for Social Innovation, uh, awesome. case studies from around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, so that book brings together 45 case studies mm -hmm. of uh, incredible work happening all over the world where designers are really working with a sense of purpose and 
one of our criteria to select these projects that inspire us were was really um, implementation. So I think mm-hmm. you know we talk a lot about social impact and design and value, um, but one of the metrics, actually, mm-hmm. going back to our conversation earlier, is you know is around execution. So was this idea executed, implemented, mm-hmm. and how is it? Uh, you know, impacting for the better the lives uh, of that mm-hmm. community. So these 45 projects in at different scales, you know, from very large, um, large and uh, very well-resourced projects to very small projects in communities are all inspiring um, projects around uh, social innovation. So uh, instead of answering your question with one project, I would say, <laughs> You know, uh, the the book will be out um, in the Global North Fall um, mm-hmm. this year, and I would encourage you to check out this project. Oh, I look forward to read it. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Mariana, thank you very much for being the show. Uh, it was an incredible oh. conversation, and I've learned uh, a lot that I can already just implement it in my in my work. So that's that's I'm very grateful for that. Thank you very much. Thank you. A real pleasure to to be on your show, Fabio. Thank you for having me.